Hey there, I'm Edwina Kennedy, registered pediatric dietitian and mom of two, and this is the My Little Eater podcast. Each week, I'll be dishing out all the best info on feeding and nutrition for your baby and toddler, answering all of your what do I do when scenarios, and helping you gain complete confidence in not only feeding your child, but in parenting as well. Every episode is filled with actionable and proven feeding strategies delivered by a mama and a feeding expert who's been there and done that. I hold your hand and take you step by step through all stages of feeding while showing you how to implement what I teach you so that you can raise a happy and healthy little eater of your own. Let's do this. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the My Little Eater podcast. Today, I have a very special guest with me. Her name is Lily Nichols. She is a registered dietitian nutritionist, a certified diabetes educator, a researcher, and author with a passion for evidence-based prenatal nutrition. Drawing from the current scientific literature and the wisdom of traditional cultures, her work is known for being research-focused, thorough, and sensible. Her best-selling book, Real Food for Gestational Diabetes, an online course of the same name, presents a revolutionary, nutrient-dense, lower-carb approach for managing gestational diabetes. Her work has not only helped tens of thousands of women manage their gestational diabetes, most without the need for blood sugar-lowering medication, but has also influenced nutrition policies internationally. Lily Nichols, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. I um, have followed you for quite some time. And I followed your work and I love your noble approach to nutrition. It has really spoken to me. And I love personally how you challenge the status quo um, and, you know, the typical and seemingly arbitrary guidelines that are always set by some, you know, sometimes some of the largest regulatory bodies out there. Um, And most of all, I love how you're actually up to date with the research and you're so thorough in how you cite every single thing you do and you're just always looking at the cutting edge stuff, the new stuff. I can't tell you how many times I personally have read something that, again, maybe like American Academy of, you know, I'm not even going to say, but whatever, different <laughs> different regulatory <laughs> bodies have posted. And sometimes I just, I just kind of cringe to myself at the fact that, you know, sometimes things could be like 20 years old or, you know, there's so much new and upcoming or, you know, non-conventional research or approaches or things like that that have come out. And I'm like, why haven't things evolved? So anyway, I digress. Um, What I would love to start off with is just getting to know how you got started on this journey and how did you become known for this non-conventional approach to dietetics? Okay, I'll have to decide how far to go back in the story. Um, You know, I entered into nutrition school already really interested in nutrition and having gone through, I think like many people who study dietetics, you know, my own journeys with food, you know, I'd been vegetarian and saw my health significantly decline and ended up working with a nutritionist who introduced me to more like ancestral eating style stuff and a whole bunch of information that was contrary to um, what I had personally been reading online, which was like to be essentially like low fat vegetarian. So it was many, many years of, you know, journeys in my own food, (laughs) food journey, um, alongside going through nutrition school and always having that little, you know, voice in the back of my head, like, but what about this? But what about that? And when you have access to research and medical journals when you're in school, I could actually dig into things. So, you know, my textbook is saying saturated fat 
causes heart disease. And I could look at the literature and see, did it actually say that or not? Or where did that even come from? How strong is the evidence on that? What about, you know, throw out some random vitamin or mineral or compound in food? And how does that affect us? So I did a lot of I guess I started sort of debunking things um, all the way back in college, and that has kind of stuck with me my whole career. So fast forward to my work with gestational diabetes, I at first was you know a good dietitian and and followed the guidelines. In fact, I had worked on those guidelines at the California Diabetes and Pregnancy Program, so like state policy level. Um, prior to most of my um, like heavy, heavy work, I guess I would say in clinical practice. And, you know, you just want to do the right thing. And I just figured we must have, you know, this, this, uh, th- these guidelines must be like based on really good science. I mean, a lot of the colleagues I was working with had been in the field for 30 plus years, right? I thought we were doing cutting edge stuff. And in some ways the organization was, and in other ways, there was just a lot of things that had sort of become dogma and just are passed down because that's what we always did. And in practice, I found that my clients' blood sugar often got worse when they followed my dietary advice. It didn't make sense to me. And so that that really is what started me deep on this journey. That's what led to my first book, Real Food for Gestational Diabetes, and eventually to my second book, Real Food for Pregnancy, um, where I go into much more than just, you know, blood sugar and carbohydrates and whatnot, but I just am debunking tons of myths around prenatal nutrition. And then since having kids as well, people start asking me about babies and toddlers and whatever. And so I know you wanted to talk about um, salt and baby food today. So I just kind of keep going with like the next topic that people are asking me to write about. It's like, okay, I'll, I'll look into the research on this, but you know, it's, it's a lot of work when you do that. A lot of my um, articles on my site or my like continuing education webinars take 30 to 50 hours to put together. Right. So it's like, you have to really like have the time to do that. So I understand why most clinicians are not doing that work because to really dive in, you know, you can't just find your answers on page one of search results on PubMed. It's like a, it's a long process. (laughs) Yeah. Oh my God. 30, 50 hours or 50 to 70 hours. I don't even know what what it was you said, but my mind, like my eyes just glazed over. I was like, holy, I think the fact that you are willing to ask those questions and to really think critically and really you're doing this on behalf of all dietitians and nutritionists and medical professionals. Like I can't thank you enough for the amount of work and time and effort that you are putting into this because you really are changing, uh, you know, the way we, we help our patients. So anyway, what I would love to talk to you about today, because I know the parents listening to to this today are really parents of babies, parents of toddlers. And one of the things that we hear over and over and over again, and that we all spew out is we have to limit the amount of salt our babies get in their diets. And you wrote a blog post that was called Don't Add Salt to Baby Food, the Surprisingly Weak Evidence for Infant Sodium Requirements. And we're going to link that blog post in the show notes so everyone can check it out. But I know where you have two little ones at home, right? Two of them, right? Yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I Again, your journey with feeding them, you've probably been able to dive into this and, and I've seen what you've put out in this blog post. So I would love to start with um, talking about basic salt guidelines for babies 
And I know that you said in there that given that there are so many myths about salt for adults that are perpetuated in outdated guidelines, I'm wondering if you can also tell us what those myths are for adults to start with, and then we'll kind of dive into some of the details around the stuff for babies. Sure. So salt is, I mean, I feel like I'm always taking on some of the nutrients that are like the main maligned nutrients of the dietary guidelines. It's like salt, saturated fat. (laughs) Those are probably the top two, but there are others. Um, And salt, I think, is one that most of us have been told you, you shouldn't eat much of, right? It'll make you puffy and bloated. It'll spike your blood pressure. It'll damage your heart and arteries. It'll damage your kidneys. I mean, it'll lead to strokes, you name it. Um, And we have a lot of epidemiological evidence where they look at like population-wide rates of disease and then try to correlate it with very specific factors that salt is like killing us all basically. But actually, many of those claims are unfounded. So you need salt for electrolyte balance. This keeps like your heart ticking, your cells talking to each other. You need it for maintaining um, correct plasma volume in your bloodstream. So in other words, like regulating your fluid levels, you need it for um, neural signaling. So you can, you know, think straight and and move your muscles in the right way. Um, You also need it, you know, when you're under stress, your body goes through more salt. When you eat low carb, your body requires more salt because you spill more out in your urine when your insulin levels are better controlled. Um, You also need salt to maintain adequate stomach acid. The the chloride of sodium chloride helps you make hydrochloric acid, which ultimately helps you digest your food and absorb minerals and vitamin B12 and um, kill off pathogenic bacteria. So Salt is something that it's, it's a bit of a, a new, new thing for us to think that it's evil. Um, you go back like 100, 200 years, and certainly we were consuming a lot less processed food <laughs> back then, so probably less salt as a whole, but salt wasn't looked at as the enemy. Um, so a couple of the myths is that um, you know salt supposedly raises your blood sugar, that's or blood pressure, sorry. And that's not always true. Um, only about 25% of the population is salt sensitive. And actually 15% of the population will have increases in blood pressure if they eat too little salt. Mm-hmm. Um, so yes, there are some people who have salt sensitive um, hypertension where they do need to be careful about their salt, but that is not the majority of the population. Um, the other myth is that people think salt Uh, if you eat less, it's healthier automatically. Um, But actually there's what they call a J-shaped curve relationship with salt intake and cardiovascular risk. Whereas if you eat too little or an extreme ton of salt, you're going to have um, a relative increased risk of cardiovascular disease. But in the middle of that, there's actually a lower risk of heart disease. So there's, there's kind of a sweet spot. Um, there's another myth that, uh, you know, if you eat too much salt, it's going to damage your kidneys, but in fact, our kidneys are able to excrete actually fairly large sodium loads. There's even a book, um, for people who want to dive into this in more detail, there's a book called, uh, the salt fix by, uh, it's written by a doctor cardiovascular researcher. That's really interesting. Goes into a lot of this in more detail that I recommend. Um, that book actually came out after I, first wrote about 
salt myths for adults. So I want to throw that out there. Um, another thing I want to add is that the, um, this idea for these people who have salt sensitivity, so the people who do indeed need to watch their salt, the assumption is that, okay, you know, your problem is solved if you just eat less salt. Like this is an issue of salt and only salt. And actually you're this salt sensitive hypertension um, has more to do with your blood sugar than it does with the salt. So if your blood sugar is elevated and particularly if you're eating a lot of refined carbohydrates and fructose in particular, that can create salt sensitive hypertension. So it's not the salt necessarily, it's the overconsumption of refined sugars and fructose leading to elevated insulin levels, leading to salt sensitivity. It's like a different mechanism. So we're blaming the salt on something that's really caused by blood sugar issues. <laughs> it's also intertwined. It's like, it, yeah. it, again, you have to look at things from a holistic perspective, whereas we're, we've you know, traditionally anyway, been so used to looking at things like nutrient by nutrient and isolated ways. Um, so I love, I love that. And, and I think after you seeing all those myths with salt and, um, adult he health, it made it so much more obvious that there are probably some myths, uh, when it comes to salt and baby health as well. So I know that, you know, some of the most common arguments for avoiding salt, um, and baby food is that their kidneys are too immature to process the excess salt that they'll develop this obsession or no, more of like an affinity for salty foods. But what, what are these like, um, I guess, arguments really based on? So uh, these are all good questions. And that was really what led me to write that um, salt and baby food post was that, I mean, the warnings against sodium and babies sound extremely dire. And there are entire, you know, professionals who have made their career who tend to be very loud on social media who are like every single post is like choose this instead of this because salt choose this or over this because salt um is your baby getting too much salt like everything is fear-mongering around salt and i was like man either there's really strong evidence behind this that i'm not aware of because again the focus of my work really is mostly you know preconception prenatal and postpartum <laughs> So, you know, the kids stuff is like people ask me to dive into some of these topics because I have kids or they've, you know, worked on their health using one of my books or working with me personally or in one of my courses. And now they have kids and they're like, what do I do? Because this advice on feeding kids is opposite to your advice of how I should eat. And it worked well for me in my pregnancy and postpartum, but now do I need to like completely switch how I'm cooking in order to feed my kids safely? I mean, that's why I had to look into it. The interesting thing about all of this is the evidence behind supposed harm is almost entirely lacking. And I probably do a better job of describing all of the literature in the post because writing is my like default clearest form of communication where I can organize all of the individual studies and put them into context for people. But suffice to say, um, the idea that salt damages infant kidneys is not proven. Um, so when they have looked at this, like, like a lot of these 
guidelines, you have to look at like, what is the origin of it, right? It was kind of like with carbohydrates and pregnancy, what is the origin of this number? Where did this come from? Because what you tend to see is that people glom onto a recommendation and then the literature will just sort of incestuously cite that whoever originally said it or just cite it from some other paper from five years ago. And you go to that paper from five years ago and you're like, well, where did that come from? And it goes to a paper from two years before that. Well, where did that come from? It goes to a textbook. Well, where did that come from? And it's hard to find. And so what I was able to find on um, sodium intake and um, infant kidneys was that the original fears seemed to stem back from a study in the 1940s, where they gave both infants and adults an IV solution that was 40% sodium chloride, and then they monitored urine output. And they determined through that study that infants were not able to excrete the sodium load in their urine to the same degree as adults. Um, However, other studies have examined that study in detail and found that they actually didn't measure sodium in those studies. All they did was measure urine volume. Now, urine volume as a proxy of kidney function is invalid, especially for infants, because we don't know the standard rate of urine flow for infants. It's, it's literally like arbitrary, they say in the literature, they just choose an arbitrarily chosen urine flow rate because they don't know because you can't measure it easily because infants are in diapers mm-hmm. and it's hard to extract the urine from diapers and they never extracted the urine from diapers to measure the sodium in it to see if they actually excreted the sodium load or not. Okay. You see how this gets into like really granular, like stupidity. I don't know any other way to put it. Um, But that study from the 40s is where most of this um, came from. And now we have studies from like the early and mid 2000s, um, again, showing that you really can't measure sodium from infants because it's usually done via 24-hour urinary sodium. So you collect urine for a full 24 hours and then measure the sodium content in that urine. So you can come up with like a ratio of sodium to the amount of fluids and et cetera. They can't do that in infants because you're not collecting all of infants urine. Maybe if you found somebody who was doing like an excellent job of, um, what do they call it? Elimination communication where they're catching all of the peas on the potty. Like maybe if you worked with a family who was doing that, you'd be able to measure it. But, um, thus far, nobody has done that. And what I found especially interesting was that, so this concern is like, okay, baby's going to get too much sodium. They can't excrete it. So then the sodium is going to build up in their bloodstream or in their body and cause harm, right? Just as we expect sodium to cause harm to the arteries in adults or the kidneys in adults, right? But it's very, very hard to find studies on high blood sodium levels. It's called hypernatremia in infants. What you find more is hyponatremia. So low blood sodium levels. And this is much more common than hypernatremia. And it is mostly um, from infants who are uh, not able to, to obtain enough fluids and food, whether they're breastfed or formula fed, they're not eating enough. And so when they're dehydrated, their body will try to conserve sodium to also try to conserve any fluids. And thus, you know, you run into this issue. But um, you can't find, like, I was only able to find, I think it was one study 
on um, hypernatremia, and that was from an infant who received an improperly manufactured infant formula, which had eight times the usual amount of sodium. Um, But even that infant did not have um, kidney damage necessarily. I mean, it is a medical emergency if you have Mm -hmm. hypernatremia. I don't want to like wish it away as not a problem. It's just exceedingly rare. It just like does not happen because your body can excrete the sodium. And in addition to that, we also need to look at the age of the infants during these studies, because if you're looking at an infant who's below the age in which you introduce solids and they're solely getting all of their sodium from breast milk or formula, it's a different scenario because the kidneys mature um, at different stages. And I've seen studies that suggest by four months or at the very least one year, the infant kidney is mature enough to excrete a sodium load as effective as, as efficiently, I should say, as an adult. So if we're looking at these, you know, differences in uh, blood sodium levels in infants that are like one month old or two months old, does that have any bearing on an infant who's six months old and being introduced to solids and they're having their one meal of the day, which is like a teaspoon of food. Maybe it's like two bites maybe. And we're concerned that there is like a tiny sprinkle of sodium in there. Like, is that really like, we're not comparing apples to apples here anyways, because the kidneys are at a different state of maturation at um, six months of age. Yeah. It almost adds like, I mean, we've got enough to think about, you know, how it is. It's uh, it's like a crazy minefield trying to navigate all the things that you have to watch out for and include. And like, you know, it's just insane, um, especially when starting solid. So it's almost like this extra thing that maybe isn't, isn't fully necessary. Like we know right now the official, again, recommendations, according to all those major regulatory bodies. And what I always say is it's about 400 milligrams a day, but that includes the amount of breast milk that they're taking in or formula. So they say it's about then 200 milligrams of sodium per day that would come from food. And then maybe another 200 milligrams that would come from the breast milk. And that kind of like makes up how much sodium they should get. And we Again, learning from you, and I actually, I mentioned this in my my, uh, baby led feeding online course that we don't have full research to say exactly how much is too much. We just have basic, basic, basic preliminary study. I think I thought it was done on, I think there is one done on um, premature babies, isn't there? I don't remember it exactly, but I know there was one thing that was done on on premature babies and their inability to like... um, maybe it was the one that you're talking about, excrete salt. I almost have to go back and look at it. But I I, I say yeah. we don't have enough research. This is just kind of, it's estimated that, you know, or we assumed I should say that babies can't handle a lot of salt. So we try and keep it around 400 milligrams a day. And I always get parents, you know, saying, well, you know, what if they had, you know, I don't know, like a bite of my pizza or something like that. And that had, you know, more sodium. And then I went over that day, like, are they going to be okay? And I'm like, yes. they're going to be okay. And generally just try and like average things out. You know, you give them some high sodium foods one day, maybe you just reduce the amount of sodium the next day. But what you're saying really is like, we don't even have like that 400 milligrams a day isn't even really based on anything proven. Oh yeah. We didn't even get into that. We can do that if you want. Yeah. I would love to. And like, I, I, I think, I think you said something about like, you know, they looked at like they basically basis on adequate intake level, right? 
Yep. Mm -hmm. Okay. So let's, okay. For everyone who's listening, they probably don't even know what that means. So maybe you can dive Mm -hmm. into that and explain how this all came to be and what adequate intake level means. And I I do want to add, since I just came across another um, data point as we were talking, when you're concerned about this whole, you know, excessive sodium consumption resulting in kidney damage, there are precisely zero case studies in the literature showing that that excessive sodium consumption of complementary foods in infants six months of age or older is linked to kidney damage. There is none. All of the hypernatremia cases I found, so this is high blood sodium levels, um, dating all the way back to the 1970s, were in young infants, usually around 10 days of age, no more than 21 days of age. And this is all from inadequate consumption of their breast milk or formula. It's dehydration. Mm -hmm. It's a result of dehydration, (laughs) period. Um, Or dehydration caused by um, some sort of like infectious disease causing diarrhea where they're losing a bunch of fluids. But it's dehydration, not overconsumption. And again, can we equate that data from 10-day-old babies to six months old? In my opinion, no. Um, We'll get into the adequate intake because this is really interesting. So that is one of the things, again, because of all of my other work and seeing so many times how uh, inadequate the data was in setting specific dietary guidelines, um, whether that's for macronutrients or micronutrients, the first thing actually that I looked at with um, infant salt, sorry, you probably hear my daughter in the background, was um, where was the sodium limit for babies and how was that set? And so it was interesting that what I found is the, the sodium guidelines for infants are what's called an adequate intake level or AI. And guidelines only opt for an adequate intake level when there is not enough evidence to set a more accurate guideline, such as an estimated average requirement or a recommended daily allowance like RDA, right? Um, So in a nutshell, an adequate intake is just the daily average nutrient intake based on estimates of what healthy people consume in their diet. So it's assumed that because these people are healthy, then their intake of that other thing, in this case, salt must be adequate. Mm. So with infants, the way that they looked at that was by determining the sodium levels in breast milk. So for infants six months and younger, the AI is for sodium is set on the amount that's in breast milk. And for infants older than six months, they have a six to 12 month um, recommendation that is based on the estimated amount of breast milk they're consuming, assuming that there is a certain, um, level of sodium in that breast milk, plus a certain amount of complementary food. And I couldn't find them describe what those complementary foods are that they use to estimate the average amount of sodium they're taking in. So that's another guesstimate. But I did want to look at the breast milk part because I've done pretty extensive research into um, the variable nutrient levels in breast milk and particularly how maternal intake of nutrients impacts the nutrient values in breast milk. So I was like, hmm, is like sodium level in breast milk just like always the same or does it vary? Like what did they use to set that level? And that's where things got really interesting because I found that uh, sodium levels in breast milk can vary a lot. And they're um, actually one of my favorite breastfeeding um, breast milk nutrient content researchers, 
um, Dr. Lindsay Allen has has been on some of these committees trying to push for change on the adequate intake level because it's not it's just not evidence based. There's no other way to say it. They chose like a very small subset of American women and um, chose the average sodium level from that subset of women. But I went into the literature and found many different studies um, showing a wide variation of sodium levels in breast milk, ranging anywhere from like, you know, only 50% higher um, to pretty similar to the U.S. to 15 and a half times higher than what the U.S. level was set at. And so if, you know, we're making these assumptions on just bad data or inadequate data, like in my opinion, the AI should be a range. If we're even going to set one at all, it should be a range Mm -hmm. and not this one specific level because the level that they went with um, was really low. It's really low compared to what you see in, in a lot of these other studies. Um, and moreover, the breast milk sodium concentration can change like day by day, hour by hour. It might even have differences um, based on like a woman's ethnicity or her diet. Like there was one study out of, I believe it was Turkey, that um, Turkish women consume more salt than the average American. And that was the study that had um, a couple samples that were like really high in sodium. Um, so that was pretty interesting. Although I found the study in Japan, which generally they have a pretty considerable sodium intake as well. Um, their sodium intake wasn't as, or the sodium level in their breast milk um, wasn't as high as in the Turkish women. Um, we also need to think about our sodium levels changing at different stages of lactation. And the suggestion in the US guidelines is that sodium levels in breast milk decrease over time but I found other data showing that sodium levels in breast milk increased over time in a different study. So in other words, it's all just a giant guesstimate. We have no idea how much sodium our babies are getting from breast milk. We don't know how, I haven't seen a study that like compared women who are getting like X amount of sodium to a medium amount to a high amount of sodium and how that impacts the sodium levels in their breast milk. I haven't seen that study. I don't know if it's it exists or not, but I was not able to find it. Um, so it's, it, to me, it's just silly to get hung up on this very specific number and having moms and families who are already totally overwhelmed and stressed out about trying to figure out how to introduce foods to their babies and looking for choking and watching for allergies. And, and yeah. now you're going to have them like add up the amount of sodium that they're getting when they're like, literally eating a teaspoon of food. Yeah. <laughs> like, you know, it, it just, uh, to me, it just is, un, it's unfair. And I, I actually think it's do, actively doing harm to a lot of families because it causes a lot of anxiety. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's a perfect example of how, I mean, we know how many diets and different types of ways of eating there are all around the world and cultures everywhere. And like you said, if, if an adequate intake level is based on like how much salt are these babies getting and they're still healthy, I guess it's like, well, if you look in one popular, one population, they're getting tons and they're healthy. And then another one, they're getting less and they're healthy. So then it's like, well, maybe they can clear out the amount of salt or maybe it's the other things, like you said, looking at a holistic perspective, like maybe it's other things that if, if, if we ever come across a study where, 
you know, there are negative effects. Like, is it really the salt? Is it something else? Like there's so much more research to be done around this. And so I agree kind of instilling this fear. And I'm not saying like we shouldn't watch out for salt levels because we know even for adults, like we generally, it's more about, I would say like the quality of the food you're eating. Right. So I know you're a big proponent of whole foods. I'm a huge proponent of whole foods, like through and through. And I, I know that when you go to foods that are more processed, you're, you're generally going to be going towards foods that have a whole slew of other ingredients that are not going to be good for your health that also do have a lot of salt. So you could almost correlate in certain circumstances, a food that's high in salt, if it's processed, will also have other things in it. You want to avoid that. But I mean, if we're talking a whole foods diet, most things are made from scratch or at home or whatever, you know, the occasional, again, bite of pizza that your baby got or whatever, like French fry or, you know, it's not going to make or break their diet. It's not going to cause them to have some kind of crazy disease. Like you just have to be sensible about it. Exactly. Yeah. And to put that into perspective, about 75% of the sodium consumed in the U.S. diet is from processed foods. And only 10% is what's added during cooking or at the table. So, you know, yes, I I think especially for families who are consuming um, a lot of processed foods, probably a good idea to watch the processed foods, not just because of the sodium. It's like the sodium plus all the other stuff. But if you're mostly cooking from scratch and you're, you're like, worried that you put, you know, a sprinkle of salt on the broccoli before you served it to baby. And oh, no, now I have to like throw it away and prepare a new one that doesn't have any salt. Like, come on, we also have data showing that if you provide kids with vegetables that have a little salt and fat on them, they'll eat more of them too. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. So if we want our kids to learn to enjoy foods that are slightly bitter, I mean, salt helps mask bitter flavors. And so you can get littles eating broccoli and asparagus and kale and all sorts of more complex flavors if they taste good. Right. Um, so logical, right? (laughs) It's not, it's not complicated. And I really wonder how many people in like previous generations were going out of their way to prepare completely separate meals for their Mm -hmm. infants. I don't think that they were. Yeah. Moreover, back in like the sixties when they started getting concerned about sodium levels in baby food, I mean, the average infant was consuming 2,300 milligrams of sodium. Wow. Yeah, because they were just giving wow. them like traditionally canned foods. So mm-hmm. imagine like canned vegetables and canned meat and all the canned stuff that's so high in salt, just like, you know, think like spam, right? Yeah. We were getting a ton of salt. I mean, if, if we were like, we would have a whole generation of people walking around with severe kidney disease. Right. Because, I mean, they were getting just extreme quantities of salt. So I I don't think we should be giving babies 2,300 milligrams, but there was definitely a time when we had switched from homemade baby food to pushing this, you know, 1950s style, like get everything canned and pre-made where babies were getting a lot of Mm -hmm. salt. So, yeah, it's... I agree. It's all perspective. And so for everybody that's listening today, I think the biggest takeaway here is like, you know, we're, we're all for healthy diets in general. We're all for doing what you can to make your diet and your baby's diet, you know, as best as you can make it. But that being said, we all need our food to taste good. We all have a life to live your baby. There's no evidence 
literally like no evidence that there is going to be any risk of developing, or I should say like any development of like kidney disease, like we said, or any like dire, dire outcomes here out of having a little bit of salt in your food. So don't stress, eat generally whole foods diet, you know, generally speaking, you know how I teach you in the baby course about what kind of foods to serve, but you do not have to worry to the extent that so many of us are worrying about, you know, every little speck of salt and milligram, you know, that your baby takes in. So I think it's going to offer a lot of peace of mind for everybody listening. And I am so grateful to you, Lily, for just debunking this and laying it all out for us. Can you let us know how we can find out some more about you and all your work that you do? Sure. You can find most of my work just on my website, which is lilynicholsrdn.com, um, including the salt post that I know you'll link to. And like I said, you know, most of my work is with pregnancy and uh, postpartum and preconception. Um, but I do have, you know, little snippets of information on, on feeding kids and babies as it becomes relevant. Uh, if you're interested in my books, uh, I have Real Food for Pregnancy and Real Food for Gestational Diabetes. Um, where you can get those as linked out on my website on the books tab as well. If you want to check out Real Food for Pregnancy, for example, um, I have the first chapter for free as a download on my website. So check that out. And as far as social media, I'm most active these days on Instagram and my handle is the same as my website. So Lily Nichols RDN. Amazing. Thank you so much for everything. 